Welcome to the intersection of Black culture and horticulture with your girl, Cola B. Talking. And guess what, y'all? We black in the garden. Hey, hey soil cousins. Hey, how y'all doing? Happy Negro New Year's. That's what it is. That's what we're doing around here. As we are coming into February, which is also known as Black History Month, shout out to Carter G. Woodson for making sure that we we had some time set aside to be officially designated for that observation. Uh, of course, if you are Black, you really don't have much of a choice. I mean, you. I guess we all have choices, but I'm just being realistic about the fact that Black people, black history is literally every day. You know, every breath that you breathe is historic. You know, every act of resistance is historic. Not every not every historical item ends up being recorded or even observed or remembered. So that's something to consider, you know. I be getting kind of deep sometimes. You know how I go. But yeah, Black History is 365 or 366 on a leap year. All right. And so with that in mind, I did a little I did a little reading up on Dr. Marie Clark Taylor. And in that reading, I didn't see her being referenced as a doctor specifically consistently. Uh, mainly saw her being referred to as Marie Clark Taylor. So I did a little digging on the 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 application of the title doctor. And it really has a lot to do with your reaching the highest level of uh, advancement in a degree in your field. And a PhD, uh, especially considering the fact that as we're about to uncover... Dr. Marie Clark Taylor was truly a teacher's teacher. Her teaching methods were, um, were they were internationally observed. I'm trying to find a, a, another word. I don't like to keep using the same words over and over again, but I do know words. But yes, internationally, uh, her her application of how she was doing the teaching thing was most certainly out there, um, even according to uh, President Lyndon B. Johnson. So, yeah, this was way, way back early in the 20th century as we are now, you know, in the 21st century. But, hey, we're not getting into Afrofuturism as of now. We're talking about black history. So, and that's exciting, though, just the juxtaposition of the consideration, I told y'all no words, of history versus Futurism, as far as Black people are concerned. So what happened was I decided, ooh, let's let's mix it up. Let's make it fun. It's like Black history, but make it fun. So I took this portion from the plant Kiki, actually. I sat down and had a really dope and really fun conversation because if it's the Kiki, we're going to have us a good-ass time. And so it was myself, Camille, and Derek these are familiar voices to you. If you are an OG soil cousin, they can be heard on season one of Black in the Garden. They can be heard on the Plant Kiki at any time. 
And as I mentioned last week, we were on a bit of a hiatus, but of course, you know we had to swing it back in motion for the ancestors. Pull it back together, all right? So we got a new schedule of how our episodes are coming out. And for those of you who are listening to Black in the Garden who had not had the Plant Kiki experience, consider this a sample, but also Black history. Listen, we're, we're accomplishing many things all at once. And I hope that you are blessed. I hope that you are enlightened. Uh, one of my favorite things about Black History Month, because um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to observe it. I'm, I'm not going to not, okay? And one of my favorite things about it is that I tend to be more inclined to just take a few extra steps in order to find out more about historical figures, uh, especially as they pertain to specific areas of interest that I have. And of course, being interested in all things plants, we had to go and find us a black historical botanical figure. And I want to give a shout out to the Denver Botanical Gardens. Their Instagram page was, um, if you go back on there, you can see that they had highlighted some black historical botanical figures. There's probably a better way I can say that, but you know, we, we already saying it now. And so I did definitely take note of some of the figures that they mentioned because I have been down to the library and everything and was just struggling to uh, find not just black scientists, but specifically uh, black botanical uh, history, historical figures, because, you know, our history can be obscure, unfortunately, but... Here we are now on the other side of this segment from the plant Kiki is the prequel to the sequel with the of the interview with Alexander Hardy, which was just a great conversation with a great friend of mine. And so I hope that you enjoy all of this and the spirit that I'm coming to you in 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 delivering it. And I appreciate you for lending me your ears as always. And I will get back with you at the other end of this episode. The first woman of any race to gain a PhD in science from Fordham University. Oh, here in the NY. I don't think that that's an HBCU. However, no, it's not. Definitely head of the botany department at an HBCU. Ah, okay. HU. Howard University. Howard University. Mm. The real HU. I said it. I said it. I said it. I said it. <laughs> I know that there's going to be some listeners out there. We might get some nasty emails, but I said it. Well, if they want to send I, nasty emails, they need to send them to their mamas. Don't send them to us. <laughs> Derek is over like, send nodes, not nasty emails. Okay. That's I'll right. Nodes and news. No nasty emails. Can we stick? Why are we like this? <laughs> we're trying to talk about this black historical figure and we keep going in the gutter somehow okay that's because we love each other this we love great. it Howard exactly there is an auditorium there that is named in her honor and so she's born in sharpsburg pennsylvania i've not heard of sharpsburg but i'm sure it is a very lovely no place. me neither the time was 1911. Just imagine life in 1911. It was February 16th, so appropriately, she was even born in Black History Month before it was Black History Month. Shout out to Carter G. Woodson. Remember him? Yes. And she She's 
it seems as though she uh, she spent time, you know, her formative years in DC. She graduated from high school from Dunbar, for those of you who are familiar in DC, with honors in 1929 is where she, when she came out of high school, uh, she earned her um, Bachelor of Science. Is that what the BS is? Yes. <laughs> but the BS, yeah. I always thought that it really was really is funny. BS. I always thought that was funny. <laughs> Quite humorous, yes. The and wait a second. I'm oh, this article is it feels conflicting to me because it says she earned her BS in 1933 and and her MS in 1935 at Howard. So I'm huh. like, where where did I go wrong? Wait, say it again. She earned she her BS her. in 1933. Okay, and mm-hmm. her MS in 1935 in botany at Howard University. Okay, so she got her undergraduate degrees at Fordham, you Fordham. said? And yes. then she got her graduate degree at Howard. But damn, it makes it sound like she finished her undergrad degree in two years? I mean... Well, no, she got her, she got her undergrad in 33. Right. And then, and in then two years later... Oh, right, 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 right. Thank you, Darren. Mm-hmm. Well, Thank you. Two years, these are two years apart, like I said. Yeah, a master's, I feel like, is a two-year... Yeah, it could have been a two-year program. Yes, yes, yes. I miss her. I mean, but now, yes. when it comes to Black women in in academics, we really do be busting down them. Books. We be busting it. Yeah, that's that's what the real busted challenge is. We be busting <laughs> it. We be busting it. <laughs> I just bust it, okay? I just we heard somebody's Black Wide ass. open. I just heard somebody's black ass mom or dad in the back of my mind. You know how we do when we're doing inappropriate things, and then <laughs> bust a challenge. You better bust it on them books. You better bust yes. it. On them books. Exactly. You better bust exactly. open. She's over here talking about a book. Okay. She's over here busting. Then she on the phone. You, you better know that chapter as good as you know that the lyrics to that busted song. <laughs> Bet you Boy, busted hate it that. On, on that test. On okay. that test you failed last week, huh? It's like, damn, I, can, like, I can't, even, Dad, I can't even sing a song. Right. I can't sing a song without being challenged mm-hmm. about whether or not. <laughs> and then they call everybody. They call everybody. And she was over everybody. there busting I told her, she better bust it on them <laughs> you books. You better bust it out them books. That's exactly right. That is exactly right. Hey, this is how we learn shade, y'all, from our parents. This is it. This is it. It's been passed down from generations. Letting us know that we ain't busting down them books. Okay. So. We ain't listen. doing enough. We ain't doing enough. <laughs> okay. Marie Clark Taylor, we are here. We honor you. And we, yes, for busting down them books. Um, so, she, wow. Hold on a second. Now, okay, wait, no, I was reading the wrong thing because I thought that I was reading something else, but here we go. We, we on point. So she graduated. She got her PhD in botany, right? Cum laude. How do you say that? Is it, am I saying, did I say it right? You said it I right. I think you got it right. You said it okay. right. So she was the first woman of any race to receive a scientific doctorate from Fordham when she received that said PhD in botany. And her research interest was plant photomorphogenesis. That's a, that's a mouthful. It is a mouthful. And Derek, so since you are the whole entire botanist and representative representative of that, tell us a little bit about photomorphogenesis. Because, I mean, we need to know this as plant parents. Well, you know, talking about oral history and mouthfuls, 
photo over. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just shaking my head, y'all. You can't see me. I'm just shaking my head. SMH. She's shaking her head, but I'm feeling the energy coming to me. <laughs> when it comes to photomorphogenesis, words have meaning, party people. So photo meaning life, morpho meaning the shape of or the form of, and the genesis is kind of the beginning, the origin, the, the workings of. So this is how light can affect the physiology of plants. So photoperiodism is one thing where the plants are um, needing a certain amount of light to basically have their own resting times, quote unquote, and their own awake times, their own active growth times, sucking up light. Phototropism is light causing the plants to move towards them. And then again, that, that photomorphism, the photomorphogenesis rather can go into even using different light schedules and patterns to affect how your plants look, like more so than just they're big and bushy, but changing the colors of them or expressing mm. certain flavors mm. and things of that nature. So you can get really intense by, and this isn't just by using your typical at-home light. You could do this, but you would need like specific things where you can cut things on and off and have these levels of reds and blues come on. Mm. So it's some deep, divey science stuff. I'm so into that. I mean, just when when I think of like what her experience must have been like in that and I'm I'm I would love to be able to have a conversation with her unfortunately she did pass in 1990 but I just I can't help but wonder like how how she conducted experiments because as right. a scientist especially when your 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 um at your area of of study is in that one particular thing that means you have to spend a lot of time doing a lot of research and a lot of experimentation. And you're talking about all these different light rays and shades and, and all of that. And I know she was she was definitely a nerd after all of our own hearts. A blur. Yes. She had to be a blur indeed. the original plant blurred. Look at <laughs> I'm following in some great <laughs> footsteps. Aren't you? Though? You really are. Yes. A blurred and a botanist. A yes. Mist. All of that. Look at that. Yeah, I, I think it's so special just to be in the midst of it. <laughs> but see, she's also a black woman that had something to do. Okay. And had a place to go, and that's you too. So look at all three of us. Wow. wow. I, mean, I, don't, I don't feel excluded, but look at look at you finding a place for me. <laughs> look, I'd like to make sure everybody's included, but think about it like this. When we think about these black scientists of yesteryear, like mm -hmm. there was times where they didn't have the resources and the accesses to certain tools and resources like their white scientific counterparts in these universities did. So like when we talk about George Washington Carver, in his classes teaching, he had, you know, people actually make stuff. You had to make this and find that and study this. And, and you know, there were really no textbooks. You just had to kind of go off of the dome here. But in her world, it's again, like, how I do wonder, like, how did you do this? How, what tools did you use? What did you have to get somebody to rig together? Or, what did you rig together yourself? So it's, mm. it's really gorgeous. All right. So today on Black in the Garden, we have a good friend of mine. I will just lead with that because that is an important qualification as well. Sometimes, not all the time, but we have a writerly human with us who is a dancer and a mental health advocate. All right. A lupus survivor. And my fave is a cultural critic 
he definitely will let you know how he's feeling about the things as he has done in all of the incredible publications that he's written for. But you can go and Google that or do all of that research on your own. This is Alexander Hardy. Welcome to Black in the Garden. Hey, hey, hey. How are you doing? I'm feeling pretty good today. I'm Black, so I'm winning by default. So glad that you are feeling well. I want to get into the jump off with you by asking you, when did you first realize that plants were an important part of your life? I have always grown up with plants around, both at home and at my grandmother's house. So early as I can remember, our living room, computer room, our Florida room, my grandmother's house, her front yard. She always had like this big ornate fountain in her front yard with water-based plants in it. The bushes and the hedges, she was always big on keeping those things kind of manicured and in good condition. Literally as far back as I can remember, I've been surrounded by plants. That's beautiful. And so she would keep like fresh cut flowers? Not all the time, but it was a frequent thing. Like on her dining room table, my grandmother to see flowers and plants just in the middle of everything else. I love that concept of keeping something fresh in your house. Some people don't keep plants, but they do keep cut flowers. It sounds like she was doing everything. You said she had plants in the fountain? She had some type of, you know, that like dark greenish brownish kind of fountain in the front yard and it had water flowing at the top and there was kind of those like viney plants kind of growing in the water or hanging over the side. So she had that in the front yard and she actually had one in her additional like Florida room patio that she added on to just kind of a extra sitting room. I mean, and where you could barely see the walls, they're still covered with plants. It's a really majestic place. Is it still like that? Because I'm trying to come through. I don't know if they're functional right now, but like the fountain is definitely there. All the plants and everything are still there in the, in the house. So those Ooh. are definitely still there. She's, you know, I think with age, she's 85 now. And so mm-hmm. when we grow up, it was a much more social place. And, you know, so getting around doing all the watering and the maintenance was, you know, a regular thing. But I guess as she's getting older, little drooping plants going on and things like, you know, so just it's maybe just like a little less on top of the keeping that in the yard and everything else is up to date. But Understandable. When you first got a plant, did you talk to your grandmother about it? I did. And I talked to my mom about it. We grew up around plants in our home, too. I told her that I was probably going to get a few because that was actually one of the first things that I wanted to do when I got in here. Even before I furnished it and got everything else, I wanted to get a plant. So told me to just make sure I'm taking care of it and realizing that they're not all one size fits all. So that was kind of the biggest thing that like each plant may need something different. You know, that's true. I mean, each plant needs something different, kind of like each human needs something different. And I want to kind of rewind a little bit because there's a lot of really dope and new things that are happening in your life, just in a I'm really settling into myself kind of way, as in Becoming a new plant parent, once you have settled yourself into a space where you feel like you are comfortable to set up and literally put some roots down, that's important because you recently got there. But tell us a little bit about what housing has been like for you as far as the instability that you have dealt with in recent years. I am kind of coming to the end of residential instability and resulting spiritual ashiness, you know, that accompanies that. And just not feeling at home. I came back to New York after taking a beat in Virginia for a year after returning from Panama to get my life together. And when I came here, I don't know what my vision was, but just to be in New York and be doing the, the work that I was wanting to do more of, teaching, talking, facilitating, being in the wellness space, being in the creative and literary spaces. I know that New York is one of those cities where it just takes a while to like find your rhythm or to like, quote unquote, get it together. 
and the struggle of get to a place of stability to where I can feel like I can plant my feet on solid ground and not feel like I'm like trying to build a house on quicksand for the first time. Coming to the end of that journey, recovering from trauma, recovering from just that emotional nonsense of not feeling like I have a good foundation or a place from which to like to have a good day to start my weeks and you know things off on a good path. Getting plants for me represented that safety and familiarity that I, that I was used to growing up. I tried to have an orchid while I was like floating around and it died like hell. And I only bought it because the brother who was selling it was cute on the train. And I kind of felt like it was an attempt to have something to make the kind of space that I was in that didn't really feel as, as stable or like home to make it feel like home. It didn't work because she died. Well, you yeah. tried though. <laughs> you recognized the benefit that she would bring to your life. But we're going to come back to that because I'm trying to make sure I'm telling your story cohesively and clearly. And going back to some of the places that you lived, you traveled, loved, danced, eaten. I know because I was looking at your website, thecoloredboy.com, that you're like, hey, I can recommend dope restaurants and places to eat in all of these places. You've blogged some of your chronicles (laughs) of your moving, like when you lived in LA and you had a roommate who I remember as Chocolate Peter Griffin. Yes, yes. Uh, Anybody who is familiar with Alex from years back <laughs> would know about that tale. That's a fun one. Can we find that still? It's there. Those have been, you got to dig deep in the archives. And yeah, even those are good memories of like how far. Like, how far you've come? Yeah. Just like, you know, even when I even I feel like I'm still trying to get it together now. Those Cause like, those, okay, so let's, it's been, a, it's been a journey. Let's go from, okay. So you're from Hampton, Virginia. Yes. Born and raised, right? Mm-hmm. And you're you had big dreams of knocking the whole dance world out. You know, you was a dancer, you was doing your choreography. What was the name of your group? Initially, it was called Groovement. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So Groovement was definitely poised tour with Janet Jackson. You just <laughs> had to get all the work in. Okay, but so you lived in New York and you have Panamanian roots. Tell us a little bit about what the experience was like there, where you had a breakthrough with your mental health. Panama was cool because it was my first time going and I was able to like go and learn about my family's heritage, try to get my raggedy Spanish together. And at the time I had started a kind of a small language company and was teaching English as a second language classes to people. I was also teaching a cardio dance type class in a gym and a couple of different fitness studios. I was also choreographing for and teaching with a dance company called Beat Dance Studio in Panama City. And I was learning and doing a lot of things for the first time. I was eating, I was traveling, I was building a kind of a new Panamanian family there with people from all over the place. And I was just doing way too much. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have the language for what I was dealing with, but I knew that I was not being able to make it through the day without experiencing large amounts of stress, having to lay on the floor and breathe because I was chained to to to-do list and, you know, and interminable. There was never enough time. I was never able to get all the things done. And so while I was like, again, learning a lot and hustling and grinding and all those things, I was teaching and running a company and hiring people and trying to learn contracts while I'm, you know, and deal with HR people in Spanish. And I started writing for the internet while I was out there in Panama. So that's a whole nother level of stress and like goals and expectations to try to keep. It just came to a head. I didn't have the language for it, but I believe that was when I first started experiencing depression there. Mm -hmm. Up to that point, Janet Jackson, being on stage, performing, teaching, choreographing was my goal. And... I just lost interest in those things. Mm. Over time, I, you know, noticed my drinking was increasing. You know, my desire to go out and socialize with my friends and even go out to eat was decreasing. The thing that brought me the most joy at the time, eating and hoeing. I lost interest in hoeing too. 
and I started giving away, <laughs> giving away my dance classes. I had hired some other English teachers at the time to like teach on my behalf and kind of expand my business. And I started giving away my English classes. You know, you know what? I don't, I don't have time for this client. Can you take over this one? Mm-hmm. At one point had given away most of them, had stopped doing my dance classes. And I was pretty sure I was going to kill myself at one point mm-hmm. toward the end of that time in like August of 2014 or so. Instead of continuing with that, like, yeah, I'm okay. I'm good. You know, I'm, yeah, I'm good. How you feeling? I'm good. I'm fine. I actually broke down and told my parents just the truth of that. If I don't leave here, I'm probably going to kill myself. Things are not going well. I'm not okay. And I left like two weeks later. That was like the first time I was able to put language to what I was dealing with. I had to get up out of there. I'm familiar with this story because just knowing you during that time, but not knowing what was happening at that time, just finding out over the last few years about what all had actually took place where you left Panama. But what I recognize from what you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't that your first attempt at entrepreneurship? That was my first time teaching for myself, working for myself, and putting some of the things that I've been wanting to do and maybe like, you know, technically training to do into action. So that was my first time teaching English, my first time hiring teachers, my first time writing a contract in Spanish, my first time working as a freelancing teacher choreographer, teaching in different studios, my first time doing that, and also freelancing for the internet too, which is a business. Because you weren't just doing one business, like you were doing at least two businesses between pursuing your passion for dance as well as learning Spanish while teaching it. Right. So I was teaching English. We were teaching like... You were teaching English, right? You were learning Spanish and that was making you more proficient at teaching Spanish speaking people. Correct. How to speak English. The entrepreneurship of it was very heavy on you and you were going at it really hard. That they sleep, we grind, you know, I'll sleep when I'm dead, all that kind of stuff. And that's why you have burnout 29 and 30 and, you know, whatever your olds, because that culture is not always sustainable. I was a new entrepreneur and I didn't know anything about valuing my services adequately. So I was Mm. undercharging and I was in a space of feeling like I needed every client, you know, rushing to this client, rushing to that client versus being like, that doesn't work for me. That's actually not a good rate. And these are my terms and I need to establish those things up front. But those are things you just don't know if you're just kind of figuring it out. And for me, the good thing, I was young. I had lupus at the time. There's a fearlessness that we have when we're young, like a boldness sometimes before, sure. before life kicks you down a flight of stairs, basically. And it do be kicking. It, it will throw you throw your ass. But like, I was just, I was in a space of curiosity. I would rather know what this is and how it works out than to be doing shoulda, coulda, wouldas forever of like, man, I wish I would have went to Panama. Man, I wish I would have. And you know, regardless of how it worked out, it crashed and burned in the end. But I learned so much. And I learned that I can do a lot. And also that although you can wear five, six, seven, eight hats at once, you're not supposed to. I viewed it as a failure then, but now I don't look at it as a failure because you're not supposed to be able to do eight things at once. That's just not everybody. Some people are proficient, but most of us not. But it's just not sustainable. And also I was doing everything yourself, not delegating, you know, trying to learn finance, trying to do payroll. It's cool to learn all that stuff, but there are people also who love that and can do that. The successful part would have been to like, let me delegate this. When you said five hats, I'm like, yeah, but we only have one head. Mm -hmm. All right. So going back to the breakdown and just referring to you 
reaching out to your family and letting them know that you were extremely vulnerable to the point of considering suicide. That was a very huge step. And we are also very glad that you took it, obviously, because you're here to be able to (laughs) talk with us today. So let's make the connection between what happened there and how you became the mental health advocate that you are today. While I was there, I was talking about and tweeting about being stressed and posting online about stressed. I didn't know what it was. You know, I didn't have the language for it. I read something that I wrote while I was in Panama. I went to some island for a break for a weekend. And reading it now, I was clearly having a mental breakdown. Yeah. But then it was just like stress, overwhelm, need a break. You know, I didn't know what it was. I got into therapy immediately, found a therapist through my local health department. And then I just, you know, was continued tweeting about it, talking about it, because I saw how much that was helping me. And for me, I guess it just kind of developed organically because the more I talked about it, tweeted about it, the less shameful and heavy it felt for me. Because the second thing was that the more I talked about it, more people were like, would either hit me up, send me a message, text me, tweet me, call me, email me. Wow, you too. I'm going through this too. You know, that's not that, you know, dang, I'm going through the same thing. I'm so that was comforting to know that I wasn't alone because one of the things about depression and feeling in that really funky space is you feel like you're alone. Nobody understands. I'm, you know, I'm a burden. I'm this, I'm that. So that was comforting. And it just kind of developed from there. I started writing about it once I started getting more of the language for it, writing about it in essays and on different websites and publications and talking about it in interviews and things like that. And I became a mental health first aid instructor. That was really good because it showed me how to help everyday people, people who would, you know, I would want to be supporting me or you and everyone else, how Mm -hmm. to recognize, you know, signs and symptoms of somebody like developing a mental health challenge or having a challenge or a substance abuse challenge or like in crises and what to do. That was kind of the first official step in that direction in the professional capacity. And, you know, I know it doesn't make me like, you know, a therapist or anything like that, but since then, as a result of that, my desire to connect people to resources and talk about feelings, I talked to so many people about what they're going through connected to therapy And it just helps me feel not like a complete, you know, shitty mess of a person. There are so many roles that we can play if we want to make a positive impact on our communities or on the world, as far as what we can do to contribute to mental health awareness and improvement. There are therapists, but there are also mental health first aid coaches What are some other roles that people play in that area of mental health besides therapists? What I love about mental health first aid is it shows us that like everyone can help someone. Like you don't need a certification, a requirement. You don't need a degree, Mm. a license. Like each of us as a human being, you're all, we're all part of somebody's village. We're all part of somebody's community. And so it showed me that each of us by listening, by affirming someone, by supporting someone, by being an open ear or shoulder to lean on, or checking in on someone, each of us can do any little number of things like to help people. There's no barrier to entry there. But you also have pastoral counselors, you know, people in the religious space. Um, You have social workers who will work with people more on their sociological interpersonal relationships. What's your family life like? What's your social life like? Um, Mm -hmm. What other factors are contributing to or detriments to your wellness? Your hairdresser. And those people are part of your village too. You know, the person Mm -hmm. who does your nails, the person who is talking to you about your marital and relationship issues as she's giving you an ultra perm or whatever it is, Girl. you know, <laughs> those are all, those are all, those are all part of your village. Yes. You have social workers, you have spiritual healers, you know, people who 
talk to people in that kind of way, people who do mm-hmm. ancestral type of work, people who read cards, all those people. Also, people who teach yoga, people who Ooh, do yeah. who lead stretches, who, who work in the mindfulness space, who lead mindfulness meditations. All those people Ooh, are yeah. types of healers and people who can help contribute to our mental health. So not just like doctors and pharmacists and you know, then you also have like psychologists, psychiatrists who, who deal with the mind from that scientific capacity and can prescribe medications if you need that too. I want to add another one to the list, podcasters. You were hosting a great podcast, The Extraordinary Negroes, which mm-hmm. I loved. I know many of you listening have definitely uh, tuned into that. And mental health was at the forefront of the theme of that show. But y'all talked about it in such a blackity black and relatable way. I know it helped a lot of people. One of my favorite episodes that I remember was when you talked to someone who y'all were discussing microdosing. Like you microdosing with shrooms and things yes. like that. Yes. Yeah. That was like really life-changing for me. The the way that that conversation was so sophisticated and that episode where you were talking about microdosing, but it was the way that you were discussing drug culture. And I hate to even really call it drugs because, you know, there's a negative connotation there. Absolutely. But y'all did a fantastic job yourself and uh, Jay Connor. Y'all did a wonderful job with the Extraordinary Negroes. So that was, it helped people. That's all I'm trying to say. I I just want to say that podcasters, even me and what I'm doing, us having this conversation, it -hmm. is helping somebody. And with that in mind... Connects are part of, you know, part of people's people's suppliers for their different extracurricular activities. That is a part of your village. And and that's a part of one's village and community too. So depending on the level of of relationship y'all have, the people who help you feel better and do what you need to do, those are all parts of your Mm -hmm. village. Indeed, that is very true. So as a mental health first aid instructor, can you give us a few tips? Because you mentioned that there are signs that we can see with people when they are not doing well mentally. Are you okay with sharing a few of those tips with us? Sure, absolutely. One of the things that I always tell people is your relationship with people are your biggest tool. And one of the things that we stress as mental health first aiders or that I always stress is you're here to identify, not to diagnose. So it's not for you to learn about signs and symptoms and go Google all these lists and be like, you know, pointing people out. Mm-hmm, that's that depression. Mm-hmm, OCD. Oh. And, and also the other thing is that with mental health first aid, the vast majority of the people that you're going to be using it with are people in your immediate network, your people you work with, people you live with, people who you, you know, share space with. And so it's to like, and that's because your relationships are your biggest tool. And so drinking alone is not like, oh, this person has a substance abuse problem or substance use issue. It is thinking about this person you know. So think about your BFF, your coworker, how this person is, what their disposition is like. Are they normally jolly, upbeat? Are they the life of the party? Are they well-dressed? Are they the person who hair, nails, makeup, everything always on point? And some of the signs is it's not always crying in a corner. It's not always mm-hmm. going to be the big overt signs that you can see, you know, raging out, you know, moping around, dragging themselves around like Eeyore. It doesn't always look like that. What you not want, Eeyore. Yeah. You know, like just no good news. Everything is a bad day. But you think about the changes you notice in this person. Okay. Right now we're all struggling in some way. Many of us are struggling with mental health in ways we never have before. So if Absolutely. you think about the change of someone who, okay, you and your home, you're, y'all go out, you'll have a glass of wine. You know, after work, once or twice a week, that's cool. 
But if this person's, for example, use has elevated or changed in a way that it is affecting their behavior, affecting their responsibility, are they showing up to meetings drunk? Are they skipping meetings because they're hungover? Is this person who maybe had one or two glasses a week, are they now punctuating every Zoom meeting with a glass of wine? Is it affecting their behavior, their interaction? Are they less social now? Is this a person who used to be able to go kiki with, you know, have, have time and gallivant with? Are they harder to reach on the phone now? Are they sleeping more, eating more, eating less? You know, wow. with anxiety, a lot of us are in quarantine. Our routines are disrupted. Our job prospects are disrupted. Your 2020 vision board is trash, you know, at this point. It is. But it could manifest as like being unable to relax, being unable to turn it off, especially as entrepreneurs who, you know, if you don't work, there's no check. Yeah. Are you unable to sleep like you were? Are you requiring a drug supplement, any kind of, of whatever kind of category to go to sleep now? So it's really about like the changes. It's not just, oh, I had a bad night. I must be depressed. Does that last over two weeks? Is it disrupting the pace of your life? Is it harder to get up out of bed to, even though you're not going anywhere, is it harder to beat your face for the Zoom meeting? Is that a struggle? So it's things like that. It's not just looking at a person who's drinking or smoking a blunt or whatever it is, or had a, had a crying fit. Is it something that is impacting their the normal scope of their lives, their daily routine? Is it something that's become a detriment? Or is it getting in the way of them living their life like they normally would? And you know your people, you know that everyone is struggling right now. So and it's not coming at people from a place of judgment, but just like my bright and vibrant friend is less so now. They're look retreating. A little dim. They look a little, little ashy, you know, hair, yeah. hair toe up, eyebrows, trash, nails, X, Y, Z. Like those are changes. Those are noticeable things. Is it financial? Mm. Are they going through something? And so it's just an opportunity for you to, as a, as a human being, as even if you're not trying to wipe someone's problem away, we still have mm-hmm. the ability to just give them a chance to say how they're doing. And the biggest tool that you can do is, is to listen and not to come yeah. in with just that, like, you know what you should do? You need to pray. You need to, why are you sad? And you what you got to be. None of that stuff is helpful. You said so many things that are very helpful. And I'm uh, looking forward to even getting feedback on how somebody's going to get some help because it's one of those, I don't know who needed to hear this, but that's how it goes. I'm glad that you mentioned Zoom calls and stuff because what you're doing is you're giving us tips in general But of course, we know the world has changed in such a way. It's the new way of life. Kind of we're getting accustomed to the the normalness of it. And I use that very lightly. But just having been in the pandemic, I guess, culture for so long, mentioning things like what's happening with what you can see of your people when we are engaging with them online and how frequently we're able to reach them and one of the, the uh, baselines being, are we able to consistently keep up with them and that whatever was consistent for us, because, you know, some friends talk, you know, every so often and some friends talk every day right, or it's right. just this ongoing text chain, you know what I mean? Where it's just like, it used to be several messages a day and now it's like, I can barely get you to respond back. Now it's all emojis and it used to just be so many characters Mm-hmm. So those tips are very valuable and I definitely hope that they help. So with your new plant parenthood situation that you're into right now, what kind of benefits have you felt from your new relationship with your plant babies? They have been very instrumental in helping this place feel like a home. And so part of my journey that I'm in now is like, homelessness and trauma recovery is establishing a deep, strong sense of safety. And so that means having things that make this space feel familiar, 
plants make me, you know, remind me of my childhood, establishing healthy routines, and really, like I said, trying to get that sense of safety. So not only do I have a sign on my wall that literally says you are safe, but having the plants there, seeing their life cycle, seeing them change color, seeing the leaves stretch up and, and droop and, you know, talk to me that way, they have giving me that also sense of responsibility. I have to care for this thing. I got to spritz it. I got to make sure she's getting light. You know, I have yes. Rita Louise and Mary Clarence over here. And I just want to make sure oh. that, they, that they're thriving. One is, I guess they say one is tropical and the other one is like in a hanging situation. So it's just like really making me have to tend to it. You yeah. know, it's not a puppy, it's not a baby, but I still have to take care <laughs> of this living thing. Um, it is living. The goal yeah. is to keep it alive. That part's been an adventure. Go off. I'm excited about that. You know, I will be with you every step of the way. I can't wait to walk you through, talk you through, or just find out what happens with this repotting situation. You've already named them. You got two in total. You have two. I have two. I have Rita Louise, the... What um, is she? Rita Louise is the croton plant. I don't know how to say that. Everybody say it different. Tomato, tomato. I, I, I saw croton as something, but... Uh, I it like has some beautiful kind of red and orangish leaves happening. And, you know, the more I'm watching things, it's, I've been seeing, I guess, the changing of the colors. And as it goes from like reddish into orange into green, that's how I kind of know like, okay, she's thirsty. Mm. And trying to figure out what that means. And then the other one is Mary Clarence. And she is a neon pothos, pothos. Um, I like, we say both of those. Okay. So I whatever like that is, she's that. And uh, <laughs> right. It's the hanging one, and I'm looking forward to. She has, you know, she's growing up, but it's the the vines and the leaves are hanging down, and like mm. that. That always we have one, a big one. I feel like it might be similar in our living room at home, and it, seeing the leaves draping down just reminds me of walking into the living room and, and greeting and seeing that plant. Just kind of tapping into what you're saying with the way that our there's some similarities with us in being transitional and how having housing insecurity. Me, I'm not sure if I've specifically said this on Black in the Garden, but I really have to find the right language for it because I didn't want to really get into the details so much, like my business. But I will say that I went from a relationship where the theme was scarcity into that relationship ending and me recognizing that abundance is on the other side of that. Mm -hmm. And because there was so much scarcity during that relationship, there was also financial instability, which meant that we were not stable with housing and all those ways that housing is unstable when finances are unstable. And I came into gardening, started loving it, loving plants. And that just made me that much more fiercely protective of finding that forever space, I guess, but just at least finding a place to be able to settle, to go through enough seasons for me to really do all of the things that I want to do on like my gardening wish list. And then with having plants, like I have mentioned some plants that I've had and having lived in Jacksonville, Florida, or having lived in New Jersey for a hot spell and, you know, just South Carolina and all of that. But in all of those places that I lived, I know what I've mentioned is that there were some plants that I had having a very large collection, especially in Florida, when I first started collecting and having to leave basically the whole collection. And whatever Mm. plants that I was able to bring with me to New Jersey did not survive because I was too busy trying to survive. (laughs) So that was shitty. Do not recommend 
But that was one of the things that I wanted to kind of get into with you, with the parallels that are in our lives. And we've spoken with each other, of course, as as being friends as we were dealing with these things. So it feels very triumphant and very exciting to be able to speak right now on Black in the Garden, you know, and having this go as well as it's going and being able to talk about that and all of the things that we've overcome. That's really what Mm -hmm. it's symbolizing to me right now. So I'm trying not to get too emotional, but I'm excited. I'm happy. I'm I'm grateful. And I'm proud of you once you've created here and all this great work you've done so far. Thank you. I did not want to do this whole interview without mentioning something in relation to plant care and suicide prevention. While we're talking about mental health, I know I kind of jumped right back onto that, but I couldn't, I would be remiss if I did not mention this because I remember having a conversation with you as you were, you know, still kind of getting to, to the promised land where you were still a little bit ashy, right? Where we talked about plants and I, I would tell you about this was before, you know, you had joined the plant ministry and all of that and got saved. (laughs) (laughs) But I remember talking about that with you and talking about how taking care of a plant and wanting to keep that thing alive means that you also have to stay alive. And so it's like, there's your suicide prevention right there. If you planted a seed, then you want to see it grow. That is like a contract that you're signing in in some kind of like, I don't know, metaphysical way or something like that. But like, really, it's a promise. It's it's a hope. There's there's all these quotes about what happens when you plant a seed. But tell me how that resounds with you, like how you remember those conversations going and going from there to where we're at now. It's a definite contract. I bring these living things into here, into this space. And, you know, with the intention of taking care of them and, and helping them like flourish and thrive and at the same time, I'm doing that same shit for myself and trying to make my, you know, help myself thrive and pour into myself and give myself what I need to grow so my leaves don't fall off. And thinking about it as a baby, more like as something that I have to take care of, as you were saying that, I just had the image of like, I mean, it's morbid and my humor shouldn't be this way, but me being in here dead as hell with these, with these dead ass, starving ass flowers oh and plants. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so like... Ain't nobody got time for that. Yeah, then they gotta um, they gotta clean up whatever you got going on, and then they gotta get them dead ass plants out of there. Exactly. I just I love that the whole concept of growing a living thing. You know, a, a plant is one example because you know we have kids and pets and all that other kind of stuff. But growing a plant and getting to enjoy it for all the things, especially if you're growing something that is edible, that you also get to enjoy that harvest, not just eating it, but you know, you got all these great health benefits. So that is, yeah, yeah, that's, that's dope. And I'm excited about what you're going to be growing uh, as you're like looking into, I know you mentioned recently, you started considering a community garden plot. Yes, I'm definitely, there's a place nearby that I'm just trying to get a little bit more insight into like, not only, well, if it's available and I, I just to see what their closing situation is like, but what makes sense to be growing this time of year with the climate and here and thankfully, there's some people who have offered like, you know, a little clipping from their garden to help get the party started. I want to add something to the comment around sure. suicide prevention. Yeah, go ahead. Um, because I've heard some people speak of dogs and kids in the same way of it doesn't solve your problems, but it gives you like something else to live for. Plants may not be like that big of a, you know, high priority item for people, but like 
the way I look at it is like, in terms of suicide prevention, there's no one thing that will keep someone alive. Like it is a bunch of mm-hmm. little things. It is a infinite number of little things, some big things too, but that yeah. keep you, you know, that keep you here. So, you know, it could be a job you're looking forward to. So I really think it's about finding as many little things, you know, to like mm. put in your toolbox, in your tool, in your tool belt to yeah. like keep you alive. So for me, I really look at it as like, it's, I have, it's an ongoing list of this book I want to do, this project I want to see through. I want to see Janet's next concert or whatever the fuck she's about to do. Amen. And I want to, you know, fill this place with plants. So like, it's, 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 the plants are just one of a number of things that I'm adding to my tool belt to like, keep me here. The theme that I got there, what was resounding with me, with everything that you listed, for the most part, is that when we have things to look forward to, it does make a difference. And so I know one of the biggest challenges for people who are newly struggling with mental health, who did not really recognize that that was something that they could even struggle with before, you know, Mm pre-pandemic. Now during pandemic and everything that is happening, because it's not just that, like, obviously, unfortunately, it's not just that. But now that all of these things are going on at once, it is more challenging to keep up with or just stay on top of taking care of ourselves. So with that in mind, I do want to talk about the mental health check-ins that you've You've been doing those for a long time, but the Mental Health Monday, is that new or you're like taking it in a different direction? Tell us about that. Well, yeah, I've been doing kind of these the self-care check-ins casually online across different platforms on Janet Jackson's internet for a number of years, just checking in with people, how you're doing, what's working well. Um, and the mm. self-care check-in is how would you rate your self-care on a scale of one to 10? What's going well for you right now? Mm-hmm. And then what could you be doing better or differently? And so, you know, I've long just been, you know, sharing resources, you know, stories around mental health, conversations that are helpful, other tools to help people in this, you know, raggedy war on spiritual ashiness. And so with Mental Health Monday, I kind of wanted to just expand on, you know, kind of the column that first started doing over on Extraordinary Negroes, um, but just as a weekly way to like, just get on and talk to people about, you know, what they're doing mm-hmm. to find joy in this time. You know, what are some, what are the good things that are happening? So I just wanted to share you know, I try to have, you know, a rotation of interesting guests, but more than anything, share what are some things that are bringing me joy at the moment, share some resources or some things that have been helpful for me or that I've seen helpful for other people, you know, other mental health events or things that are going on. I always try to do talk about mental health in a way that is accessible, you know, like it's a really white conversation oftentimes. And mm. it's important for us to hear joy, mental health, struggle, healing, whatever talked about, like in ways that we can relate to um, Black folks, brown folks, uh, marginalized folks. That's so real, though, because like you mentioned several times, uh, especially when when you were talking about your experience in Panama, that there was a whole language that you did not have. And what happens when you are transparent in the way that you're transparent and another person who I think is a dope example that comes to mind is Bassi Ikpi. I remember like before she was doing all of the mental health advocacy that she was doing when she was like literally having breakdowns on Twitter and describing, like not describing it, but she was just like being very transparent about what she was dealing with. And I remember not knowing all the things that I know now uh, that I've learned from you and just, you know, learning on Janet Jackson's internet and, and so on and so forth. But thinking like, I don't know what's going on over there, but that looked like a lot. But in hindsight, when I recognized how all of this kind of works, I realized how much 
that was necessary for us to understand like the darker parts of it. Mm-hmm. Like this is what it looks like when I'm real ashy. Yeah. And also what she's doing is important because it's not just like we are used to hearing, um, you know, a little depression, a little sadness, a little anxiety, a little stress, but like what she's done with her book and her work and then people like Azalea Banks and Kanye, they open up the conversations around when mental illness doesn't, is, is more than the regular, dep- you know, quote unquote depression and anxiety, you know, when people Talking about are bipolar. dealing with bi- bipolar disorder, you know, mm-hmm. maybe schizophrenia, hearing voices, um, mm-hmm. seeing these manic behaviors that are like really way outside of social norm, quote unquote social norms, um, you know, so like for her to be public online and, you know, maybe in retrospect, maybe I don't know how, you know, if she's embarrassed or like, I know people talk about being embarrassed about like seeing their, how they reacted in their manic states. You know, mm-hmm. someone like Kanye, who is doing all these things, trying to get be the fucking president, you know, in, in these manic states, these kind of unchained states when he's being mm-hmm. clear about he's not taking medication or prioritizing his health care. Um, but at the end of the day, it's all, it all helps to broaden the conversation around mental illness and like what it can look like. Because it, again, it's not just laying on the couch crying, watching yeah. Queer Eye, whatever the fuck. It's not just that. It's not just overeating or not eating or not sleeping. Like it can look like, you know. What? Um, a big public outburst, you know, a big, you know, embarrassing public moment that in your in your clear thinking state or in your normative state, like you wouldn't be acting like that. So um, right. at the end of the day, <clears throat> and the other aspect of it is why these conversations are important is because there's like an element of likability that I feel is involved in this like conversation of who deserves support, who deserves mm-hmm. X, Y, Z, you know, people oh, Kanye's beloved, Kanye's this, Kanye's that, whereas someone like Azalea or like other public figures or people who we know who mm-hmm. may be dealing with challenges, but maybe they are canceled or maybe they are, you know, they're problematic or whatever. And I was well, on someone the other day, at my most ashy, raggedy point, I still want someone to love me and see me as being worthy of support. You know, those and, people more than anything. So, um, all yeah. of I love that you said what you just said, um, because there is a whole deep dive. That was a whole conversation that I heard about two weeks ago on NPR. And they were actually talking with Bassey about how what's happening with Kanye and, and how we are talking about mental health around certain people. Basically, we're treating them differently depending on how we feel about them. Mm-hmm. And it, she was make she was trying to make it clear that it it doesn't matter so much how we feel about them. If they are sick, then we should be concerned with getting them well. Yep. And one of the examples that she used was if you, the if the person was diabetic and they were going into shock and they just needed you know like some orange juice or whatever, we're not standing around like asking them all these extra ass questions about like well you know, you should have had your insulin and so on and so forth, or you got all this money and you ain't got no juice, you know, you're just going to give them the juice. Mm-hmm. And we don't, you know we I mean? don't judge them. We don't judge people. You know, we don't um, call people, oh, he's so cancer. He's so, he's so dab. Like, you know, we don't, right. we don't label those people with their conditions. You know, we, mm-hmm. we say autistic person, depressed person, schizophrenic, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's someone who deals with bipolar, someone who is dealing with depression or suffers from anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, 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 I mean, there's a whole, we, we have so much work to do around how we talk to and about people with mental illness or with these challenges, but um, we do. it's, um, again, it's, 
that piece of it is of, of, of tying people's likability to it. That is the most, that is not the most, but um, that's dangerous. And it's dangerous. That's, that's you shouldn't be like qualifying or putting conditions on support for people. Because like she said, um, we don't put conditions on people who have cancer and who, you know, have these different things. And, you know, we, yeah. we, we swoop down and we circle them. We lift them up. We bring them flowers. We bring them right. food. We do all the things. And we don't see that same type of consideration for people who have mental and emotional challenges. And I will link that article in the show notes since we mentioned it. I like to make it easy for y'all. I'll, I'll do that for y'all. So um, you welcome. <laughs> but I really love the mental health Mondays and the check-ins because really, you know, when we start, when I, the, the way my mind is set up is when we're talking about something that is a problem, I'm like, cool, let's unpack that. We understand what all that is. But I like to follow it immediately with like what the solutions look like. And what I love about what you're doing with the mental health check-ins is that that is what the solution looks like. It's not the overall solution, of course, but there is something very uh, relevant and necessary about us checking in on each other. You know, we've been saying uh, through the pandemic that we'll get through this together and, you know, <laughs> you roll your <laughs> But we will get through it together because we're going to check on each other because we have. And, and so, yeah, we have Mental Health Mondays. And obviously that's happening on Monday. So um, just make sure that we got all the details that we need to be able to participate in that and, and give us your handles and everything so we know how to uh, find you on Janet Jackson's web. Sure. Yes. Um, well, we, yes, Mental Health Monday, I go live every Monday at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Janet Jackson's internet from either facebook.com, so you can search Mental Health Monday with Alexander Hardy on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, I also go live on Twitter from my Twitter handle, Chris Alexander underscore, um, mm-hmm. and the videos will also live on YouTube, um, but you can watch all of the episodes at our, on our website, um, mentalhealthmonday.getsomejoy.com. Okay. And that's mentalhealthmonday.getsomejoy.com. And yeah, all the episodes are there. You know, we, we share, like I said, things that bring me joy. And I get insight from other people, you know, in our joy mail segment as far as like what's working for them. Um, you know, how are you establishing a sense of safety? How are you coping? Um, because I think there's like power in hearing, you know, how other people are coping and getting through this time right now. It, it really is like, I cannot emphasize enough. We just need language. Everything lives in language is a big lesson that I got uh, last year, 2019. And um, it's really true. We need to have the language for the things. And so hearing people talk about it in ways that are helping us to identify these things in ourselves that's how change is also being affected. So uh, shout out to you for doing all this good work with, you know, mental health first aid and and check-ins and mental health Mondays, and just, you know, doing your best to combat spiritual ashiness, not only in yourself, but also, you know, the whole community. I wanted to mention this one last thing before I let you go. Uh, Y'all, I did mention Alex, I know for sure, in a, a previous episode of Black in the Garden, with one of my favorite quotes from him, which is, what is it about the French fries? French fries do oh. not influence. I want to hear you say it. Yes, French fries do not influence potatoes. That's just, that was just a fun one. Throwback. Marinate on that. And Alex, thank you so much for joining us on Black in the Garden. And I want to wish you love, light, and soil. Thanks for having me. Holla. 
We accomplished so much with this episode. We got some black history in. We got into the plant Kiki. We got into this incredible conversation with my good friend Alexander Hardy. And whatever details are um, may still be lingering that you may not have caught. You know, don't worry about trying to run it back and all that stuff. Don't worry, I got you. You know, if you made it this far, you're my favorite. So I got you. Check the soil. You should be checking your soil, but that's that's not what I was trying to say. But yes, while it's a Freudian slip, check your soil in your plants. Don't do too much because they're still, you know, trying to be dormant or whatever. But check the show notes. Okay. Yeah, that's what I was trying to say. Check the show notes for all of the relevant details that uh, websites, references, uh, ways to get in touch. Uh, go ahead and, and get into all of the ways that you can support and share. Do all the shares, okay? Uh, it is Black History Month. And so, you know, this is the time when we're just that much more assertive and amped and hyped about making sure that we are all on a very similar, very, um, very melanated accord. All right. So I'm into it. You know, I'm into it because I'm hosting this here podcast. And like I said, everything that you need is in the show notes. And that's really all I wanted to let you know. I am very happy to have learned a lesson from last year, which is you don't got to overcompensate just because it's February, girl. Like just, you know, put a little extra facts on it, you know, just to make sure that we we we're accurately, I mean, adequately serving and other than that, you know, we black all the time. <laughs> so we appreciate you. Well, yeah, we, because, you know, it's a team over here by now. We, It's coming together, y'all. I'm so excited. And on behalf of all of us and all of the uh, wonder that is Black in the Garden, I'm going to wish you love, light, and soil. And I will see you next week. <laughs>